everyone and welcome to another Scotchway podcast and uh, we're down the pub. <laughs> it's always good to meet right it's down the pub with Ian Maloney. Hello Ian. Hello. Um, so you've usually we ask people to come around the corner or we travel to Edinburgh at the very furthest but you've made it over from Japan. Yes. And you're, you're here to promote uh, your new novel, um, The Waves Burn Bright. I think one of the things you can tell from the book, which um, uh, we'll, we'll talk about just now, is the distinct sense of place. Now, I mentioned earlier, I know I've been a bit, but you absolutely, it's quite a difficult thing to do, I think, is to get that um, so spot on. Um, you mentioned that you some of your old haunts are in there and even some of your old workplaces are in there Um, was this a deliberate thing to kind of write uh, about a place that you knew so well yes um, it was well it was a deliberate thing to write about Aberdeen yeah that much Um, I've always felt that in the kind of canon of Scottish literature Aberdeen's been tragically underrepresented I think so I I think I would agree with that um, there's plenty of novels set in Glasgow and plenty set in Edinburgh and that's fantastic that's wonderful but Aberdeen less so I mean there are some great ones obviously you know Sunset Song set in that area and Stuart McBride's done a series of crime novels but yeah in terms of for want of a better word literary fiction yeah. there's, there's not a huge amount so yeah and it, or in the past it has been like Grassic Gibbon Rural or, or, or even um, to do with fishing but this is, is based around one of the biggest events in Scotland's recent history and it's the Piper Alpha disaster and that's central to the book Again, something I don't think in fiction has been dealt with. I might be wrong about that. Certainly, I've never come across it. As far as I know, it hasn't. There's there's three non-fiction books that I'm aware of, two kind of journalistic ones, and one survivor's memoir by a guy called Ed Punchard, who was a diver in right. Piper Alpha. And there's been a couple of plays, like a radio play and, and something on elementary in Aberdeen. But in terms of fiction, as far as I know, nothing. So... Which came, did the idea to write it with the disaster um, centrally, or was it that, was it something else that sparked it? Um, there was a number of things that went into it. Piper Alpha is, I call it, I think I call it in the book, it's an event horizon in right. the history of Aberdeen. Yeah. In the way that Hillsborough for Liverpool or the Pan Am bombing for Lockerbie is so central to the history of the character of those places. Piper Alpha is like that for Aberdeen. So for a long time, I didn't want to write about it. I didn't, I didn't want to touch it. It's, you know, it's, in many ways, it's like an open wound and you just don't want to, don't want to go there. But as I say, I wanted to write about the city. I wanted to write about Aberdeen as kind of as a character yeah. in itself. And the Aberdeen I knew, the Aberdeen I, I grew up in, and the Aberdeen I, I miss when I'm in Japan. Sure. But it slowly became clearer and clearer that I couldn't do that without dealing with Piper Alpha in, in quite a central way, not just mentioning it in the background. Yeah, sure. I kind of had to tackle it head on if I wanted to write the book I wanted to write. So, so how, I mean, I can imagine you would approach that with the utmost kind of respect and delicacy. How did you go about it? How did you go about it? Um, the first thing, the most difficult thing, was, was finding a way to approach it. Yeah. I knew what I didn't want to do. I knew those things. You know, I didn't want to do like the literary equivalent of a disaster movie and have you know one night on Piper Alpha. Sure. I didn't want to go there, and I didn't want to write a book about the real people, the survivors, and the people who actually died there. I didn't want to put my words and my thoughts into the mouths and minds of real people. Yeah. I mean, Piper Alpha was only 20, 28 years ago this year. Yeah. So many of the survivors are still alive, the families are still alive, these are still very raw memories for a lot of people, so I didn't want to kind of presume to speak for anybody. You see, I mean, one of the characters in the book, Marcus, you give the figures and you say, well, he's the plus one. I'm not deaf. This is not based on anyone. This is absolutely a, a fictional survivor. Yeah, there was, there was 226 people on Piper Alpha. Marcus is a fictional 227. So. And um, what the book also deals with is 
the the aftermath of such a tragedy and how coping's the wrong word I think, but what what the fallout from something like this can be. Um, it's kind of clear in the book that uh, it's just Peter and Marcus's family really and his relationship in particular with his daughter. Um, and it would be easy, I think, to blame what unfolds on the tragedy, but you make it kind of clear that things were not great before that anyway. There's a, there's a um, scene when they're on, on holiday in the beginning. Um, well, if you could tell us a little bit about that particular situation. Yeah, the book, chronologically, the book starts um, eight years before Piper Alpha when um, Marcus, his wife Hannah, and his daughter Carrie, who's seven years old or eight years old at the time, are on holiday in Japan. And at that point, it's clear that uh, Marcus and Hannah's marriage is not in the best of shapes. Um, there's lots of lots of arguing, um, suspected infidelities on Marcus's part, and um, this is all seen through Carrie's eyes as a yeah. as a young child overhearing her, you know, her parents arguing. So I think for me that was a great thing to do because it would have been too easy, I think, to say. Here's people's lives which have disconnected, which in certain cases have fallen apart, and it's because of what happened on this night. But you know, it's not as easy as that. Life isn't as neat and easy as that. Um, but what what Piper uh, Alpha does do is one that sets it very much in a time and place. Um, and it also sets, I think, you know, what you said you wanted to write about the Aberdeen that you know, it sets Aberdeen very much in a time and place mm. where, and I might be wrong about this, but the oil industry was changing then anyway. Yeah, I mean, 80, 86, I think I'm right saying 86 was a particularly bad point in the oil industry. It almost mirrors now, the oil prices slumped hugely, there was redundancies, there was, um, yeah, big problems, big stresses. But it was still, in some ways, um, the still kind of the early point of the the oil boom, um, when it was still there was huge money pouring into Aberdeen. There was you get as a kid, I always got stories of what Aberdeen was like in the in the seventies and eighties, where the, all the Texans were in with their cowboy hats, yeah, and yeah, yeah. cowboy boots, waving around wads of notes. But yeah, 86 sort of killed the, the prices a bit. And then 88 with Piper Alpha was in many ways sort of the end of the, the innocent period, yeah. I guess, of the oil industry. I think that's probably a great way of putting it because I think people thought from the outside probably Wow, Aberdeen, you know, it's just you know, paved with gold, or paved with black gold, you know, and, uh, uh, and this was a reminder that actually what was going on up there was incredibly dangerous again, and, um, and actually the, the resources were being exploited again, would you say that's fair? Exploited, they were certainly being drained, I mean all that money that uh, didn't quite Pave the streets with gold because yeah. most of it just flowed through and straight back yeah, yeah, yeah. out the other side. Um, but it's yeah, Aberdeen always had uh, before that before Piper Alpha, the oil industry was offshore, yeah, and both metaphorically and literally, that it was over the horizon. You couldn't see the oil rigs, yeah. you couldn't actually see what was being done. Piper Alpha was 120 miles offshore, so people could. Unless you were actually physically going out there, people could sort of pit out of mind sure. and just enjoy the house prices going up yeah. and, and not really have to deal with it. But that all changed that night. After that, it was, you know, Piper Alpha was part of the city. Yeah, yeah, it was disconnected. What I thought about when I was reading it was a few different books you've mentioned where that area maybe hasn't been represented in literature. But going back to um, the Chief at the Stag in the Black Black Oil, and obviously, which is a play which looks at how resources were being taken, uh, and people as well being taken out and, and uh, exploited. And I, I don't know whether you meant this, but that's one of the things I got from the book as well that um, a 
again, maybe exploited the wrong word, but it, it, it certainly changed things because yeah. um, I mean, when I was growing up, and particularly when I went to university, and so I started in 1998 at Aberdeen. Um, Aberdeen's living costs in Aberdeen are much, much higher right. in terms of um, compared with salaries than most places in the country. So, when I, for example, when I started university in 98, um, when you were applying for your student loan, they initially spoke about having a London version, right. an Aberdeen version, and an everywhere else. So, kind of waiting version, right? Yeah, yeah so it's kind of, you know, we know your rent's much, much higher than any sort of part time job you're going to get. While you're a student, and they ended up scrapping that and just having London and everywhere else. But it is a huge problem for even today for people in Aberdeen that don't work directly for the oil industry because the housing prices are are huge and just the cost of things, the cost of living, the cost of beer, yeah. food, and things is really high compared with what people outside the oil industry. So in a way, maybe it is a little bit like London, if you work in the service industry or something like that, yeah. you're very likely not to be living directly in the city centre. Exactly, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I mean Aberdeen's much, much smaller, so the city centre's never that far away from anywhere. Yeah, that's but true That's true um, Yeah, definitely. Uh, I always think chucking, chucking out time on Union Street's one of the most glorious sights <laughs> I've ever seen in Scotland. Yeah. But that's uh, another story. Um, so we mentioned at the beginning that you are over from Japan where you live now, you work in London. Yes. Um, I guess that gives you a different perspective at home. Um, it does, yeah. I've been asked this before and I've never quite been able to make up my mind about it. There's, I mean, there's the obvious distance gives you some sort of objectivity. Yeah. Um, you can look back and certainly living in Japan's an interesting um, situation because in many ways it's very similar, both parliamentary democracies, capitalist economies and so on but in other ways they're very very different societies so it gives a good opportunity to compare and contrast and see well you know I love, I love this about Scotland and it's not so great in Japan but in Japan they do this better than they do in Scotland sure, okay. um, so it's good from that point of view but I also feel like other pretty much every emigrant writer in history just ends up writing about home. Maybe not all the time, but you know, I think it's somebody like Joyce, James Joyce, yeah. only ever really wrote about Dublin, despite not being there for decades. Yeah. Stevenson wrote, okay, then he wrote the South Sea stories and the bottling, but he still also wrote stories set in Scotland. Yeah, I think absolutely. he was writing. The, uh, the Weir of Harmston, who's yeah. writing when he died, who's yeah. still right to the end. I mean, I, I still say that, you know, Jekyll and Hyde is basically set in Edinburgh. Yes, way, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, my it's unplanned, but this is my third novel, and all three have been set in Scotland, yeah. at various points in history. But, but some of this is set in yeah. Japan as well. Set in Japan, in Hawaii, in New Zealand, um, a little bit in Korea a little bit in Durham so yeah it moves all over the place um, which is it's something I've wanted to do for a while it's as I say it's an accident that I've written kind of three Scottish books the book before my first novel yeah. first time solo I wrote a book called Dog Mountain that was um, it's unpublished it wasn't good enough um, but it was entirely set in Japan entirely Japanese characters um, then when I finished that, I started first time solo, and since then I haven't returned to writing about Japan. So in this one, I was like, I want it. It's pull some of that well experience in. It is. But on the going back to Piper Alpha disaster, did the distance as well as the time lend a different? Um, uh, perspective of it because I presume maybe I'm wrong but I presume you spoke to people who weren't Scottish about maybe if they had any memory of it I mean it's something that's not very strongly to me I remember it very clearly one thing that surprised me when I, when I first started um, thinking about maybe maybe I, I could do this but maybe I could write about Pipe and Alpha I spoke to people in Aberdeen and said you know what if somebody said they were going to write a book about Piper Alpha, what would you think to get their reaction? Sure. Because as you said before, this is you know something that I wanted to approach with with sensitivity and, and respect. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of gauge reaction before I did anything. But 
a lot of people outside Scotland I spoke to had maybe heard the name but didn't really know anything about yeah. it. Okay. And certainly anyone I spoke to, even in Scotland, younger than me, so I'm 35, so anyone yeah. younger than me who was not directly connected to Aberdeen or to the oil and gas industry, they'd never heard of it either. Yeah. They didn't know what it was. So, and that kind of shocked me that it's, you know, if you think about how well Hillsborough is remembered, yeah. or Lockerbie, I mean, Hillsborough is slightly different because the yeah. conspiracy and the controversy, um, but how fresh those events still are in people's memory. And Hillsborough was only a year after Hyper Alpha, so yeah. it's the same kind I mean, of thing. Even other things like um, yeah. a Bradford, and there are other things that uh, I don't know, it'd be interesting to think about the difference between something that happens, I suppose, at people's work, which is what Life and Alpha was intended. But have you had any any kind of negative response when people have heard what you're writing? I've, I haven't had any negative response. I've had a lot of um, what I would describe as teeth sucking. <laughs> when I first mention it, I was to do say, it. Yeah, yeah say, you know, I've written a book about Piper Alpha. Yeah. And then when I sharp and take a when I explain what the book is, then everyone's been much more positive about it. Um, and it, it is something I was really worried about. I very deliberately didn't speak to any survivors or speak to any of the, the families of, of those who died while I was writing the book because I, as I said before I didn't want to start writing about real people and putting, putting my words into their mouths and I thought if I started interviewing people yeah. it would start to bring in connections which That's interesting. I didn't want to do but as soon as it was finished I did show it to people connected to Hyper Alpha to just say look if you find anything in this that's offensive or that's wrong or that's, that's even slightly inaccurate, tell me and I'll fix it and I'll yeah. take it out because I, I really didn't want to, to offend anybody. And everybody I showed it to came back and said, no, you're, 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 there's nothing wrong with it. The only reason I ask is I remember seeing uh, James Robertson at an I Write just after the book he did down Lockerbie. Yeah. And there were people obviously there who hadn't read the book I actually didn't want to read the book, but I was still angry about the fact that I didn't read it at all. Yeah. Um, that that worried me because obviously I'm yeah. very aware of James Robertson, and that's that's a great book. Yeah. And it wasn't. I'm not sure what year that was published, but it wasn't that long before I started. Yeah, no, thinking about like this three, at the very most three years ago. Maybe yeah, two years ago. So it was, it was still very fresh, and that that gave me pause, and that gave, made me sit down and really think about it. The kind of reaction he had. But I think the difference with Lockerbie and with um, Hillsborough from the difference between them and Piper Alpha is the level of controversy. Yeah, sure. Piper Alpha doesn't have an Al McGrahi no, no, to no, worry no. about or a, or a police conspiracy yeah. to worry about. So yeah. I thought there's, there's, less, there's less possibility of really offending. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. there's not a kind of this happened or this happened or conspiracy yeah. theories yeah. surrounding it uh, I, mean, I mean James Robertson's book in some ways kind of retry retries yeah. uh, what happened which I absolutely don't go into at all in, in this book what actually caused Piper Alpha and whose fault it was or yeah. whose fault wasn't it I just don't go near that there's non-fiction books that deal with that much better than, than I ever could so. um, having said that the, the, the um, scenes on Piper Alpha itself are, are incredibly powerful. I mean, it's really stuck with me after thank you readings. That's good to hear. Um, they as they should be, absolutely, yeah. They were. They so were the, the, the central relationship is this relationship between Carrie and Marcus Fisher. Yes. Why father got a relationship? Um, a number of reasons. Initially, I knew I wanted it to be a, a family relationship. One of the, I said before, I wasn't sure how to approach this. I knew what I didn't want to do, but I wasn't sure how to do it. And one of the books I just coincidentally happened to read at the time was um, Andrew O'Hagan's Our Fathers, yeah. which brilliantly takes kind of local, contemporary local history and yeah. family history and overlays them. And I sort of read that book and went, 
that's an approach. Yeah, that's well, that's yeah, the way I can I can approach this is to take the family and the city and sort of have one stand for the other in a way. Um, so I knew I wanted to write about family. I didn't want to write about a father-son relationship because I've done that before. Um, I didn't want to kind of repeat myself and go down that. And obviously Marcus had to be a man because he had to be on the oil yeah, sure. in the 80s there was only men yeah. I'm not sure what it, I'm sure there are more women now but yeah. certainly in the 80s it was it was men only so yeah the, the mother the, sorry the father daughter relationship is, is an interesting one it's very different dynamics from a father son relationship yeah. Yeah. Um, and when I was once I, I found out once I realised that that was going to be my approach the doing it through the family Carrie basically appeared fully formed in my head oh, she, she, it reads like that I have yeah. to say yeah. she just walked into my head and as at the start of the book she's a 41 year old woman on her way back to Aberdeen and that's how she walked into my head and I was like right that's my character I've got my character I've got my situation I, I can, I can approach this not with that clarity yeah. I mean with first time solo because it was in many ways my first my first published book but in many ways the first proper novel I'd written there are aspects of the main character there that are very similar to me that, yeah. you know he's a, he leaves home when he's a young man and goes goes somewhere new I did that so that was very much the borrowed aspects of my life Selma Hill was very different because it's lots of different characters set in a kind of semi-mythical 18th century Scotland so it was more of an ensemble but yeah Carrie just walked in fully formed I'm a I'm a 41 year old volcanologist from Aberdeen. Here's my story. Yeah, and it just <laughs> went. So um, I, another character who I think is fantastic is actually the mother. Okay. Yeah, um, I don't know why my uh, dad's a doctor, yeah. and in the character Hannah's a, a doctor. A doctor, well. yeah, a surgeon. And uh, you've mentioned the kind of lack of empathy in the family <laughs> when someone's ill <laughs> I thought yeah. mm, hang on this rings a bell yeah. I was always going to show it to him See, that's what we're talking about all yeah time. I've like, got yeah, when I was at university quite a few of my friends had, had parents in the medical profession my mother's a nurse yeah. as well and um, everybody had the same stories you know I, I had a broken arm and they said oh you'll be fine in the morning or um, yeah various, various ailments that were dismissed as being I, you know, I saw a road traffic accident today that's nothing. That's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a wee stitch will do that fine. Yeah. So, um, about, yeah. That certainly rang true, yeah. But the whole, uh, I mean, there's a breakdown of, of the relationship that um, you don't go into too much detail, but there's kind of, certainly within the parents, there's fault on both sides. Yes. What's also written very well is um, uh, Marcus's dependency on alcohol. And uh, again, done with real sensitivity and respect which is quite it's quite rare in general it is quite rare in Scottish writing you know often um, a drink is purely seen as this destructive thing now you could be argued it's the same here but when he kind of starts to piece his life back together you don't do the, the obvious thing of saying well I'll never drink again and that's it there's a much more of a kind of holistic approach to, to him as a character yeah, it's. I mean, I think this, the phrase um, self-medicating is, is particularly apt with yeah. Mark. Is that, that alcohol is obviously a huge problem for him, but it's not the source of the problem. Alcohol's bandaging up um, the, the post-traumatic stress disorder and the survivor's guilt that he's suffering from, and he refuses to get professional treatment yeah. for it for various reasons that, that I go through in the book, and. Um, decides to decides but ends up self-medicating yeah. and uh, there is different countries and different places have different approaches to treating post-traumatic stress disorder and particularly alcoholism as a, as a crutch crutch is a good kind of a good image for it because a lot of um, treatments view alcohol as a crutch and kind of think of it that if, if you've broken your leg you need the crutch yeah, until yeah, the leg's yeah. mended and then you get rid of the crutch you don't just take it away straight away so the certainly the doctor in the book um, approaches it like let's treat the post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. and the alcoholism won't take care of itself but that's yeah. uh, we'll tr we can treat that later that's 
And I think with um, Marcus's generation, it's still a generation that the idea of post traumatic stress disorder was kind of not spoken about yeah. or if it was it was usually with relationship to someone coming back from the um, a war or something like yeah. that the idea that someone um, you know with Hillsborough fresh in our mind the, that someone would react to being involved in uh, a tragedy like that you mentioned survivor's guilt which I think must be a really strong thing um, he just didn't know how to deal with any of these things in fact there's a scene where he's basically digging the whole in the garden because he doesn't know what else to do yeah I think it was certainly I mean this is just anecdotal in, in my experience but I would say with after the first Gulf War yeah there was a lot more talk of post-traumatic stress disorder and um, treatment and, and dealing with it properly the war before that was the Falklands yeah in like 84 so and I think after that there was Certainly, as far as I'm aware, there's a lot less spoken about in terms of treatment. It was all, you know, we won from the sun yeah. and um, treatment of physical wounds, like people who got severely badly burnt yeah. and that yeah. kind of thing, but much less about yeah. trauma. So. That's right, and if you think about the big American war, battles being Vietnam, hmm. and the lack of support that there was for guys who came back from that, it wasn't until years, years later. Now, pretty much, that people are talking about how that generation, and it almost was, when you think about how many people were involved, were yeah. just left alone. And even even when, it's an interesting thing actually, it just occurred to me, even when they made, Hollywood made all those films about the Vietnam War, nobody ever used the phrase post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. and films like Deer Hunter and Born on the Fourth of July are clearly about yeah. post-traumatic stress disorder but I, as far as I remember the words the words are never used I don't in the think film. so I think just, yeah. just the extreme results yeah. of it um, so we'll go back to some of your earlier books because you spoke a little bit there about a first time solo yeah um Second World War, I think, that's right, and um, I remember it being jazz and military kind of camaraderie. Yep, jazz, jazz camaraderie and a lot about Marxism thrown yes, in. Yes, there is, yes, good uh, measure. some of my favourite things. <laughs> um, so why did you decide to write that book? I mean, you said you'd written one based in Japan, Yeah. you maybe weren't happy with it, so you went down a different track. <laughs> I was happy with it, nobody else was. <laughs> <laughs> that was the that's problem. very honest. I said, it got, that one, Dog Mountain, got shortlisted for the, the Dundee Prize right. in 2013, okay. I and mean, then that's kind of as far as it, as it got. Um, I think that was the year, I think I'm right in saying that was the year Pippa, Pippa Goldsmith won it, right. which okay. is... I'm far more deserving book <laughs> by, a, by a mile um, um, but I'd had the idea I'd had the concept for something like First Time Solo for a very long time probably since certainly since I did my masters but maybe since during my undergraduate okay. years that I knew I wanted to write about not write about my grandfather's experiences in the war but my grandfather once told me something fascinating that I'd never realised before and I haven't heard spoken or written about much and that was the fact that so my grandfather joined the um, RAF right. as soon as he turned 18 you had yeah. to volunteer for the RAF you couldn't be conscripted you'd be yeah. conscripted for the others and then so he joined in signed up in 42 went down and signed the papers in 42 didn't get called to begin his training until 43 right so a year later did his basic training got sent to Canada to do his flight training because at that time there was a thing called the Empire Air Training Scheme right which is basically it was too dangerous to train pilots in Britain because they needed the planes needed the runways and the Germans could shoot them down right okay so they sent them to at that time the Empire so yeah. Canada and Rhodesia and Australia wow. and South Africa and, and places like that so my granddad went to Canada in late 43 and then they left them there until the end of the war because basically they didn't need any more pilots Wow. Once Britain started winning the air war, and they basically they were losing pilots at a, a, a far less than expected less than, yeah. rate. So all these young guys who were yeah were kind of became the last ones to to, to yeah to move in. So my granddad had said to me, you know, he he volunteered to fly and yeah. to fight and to die for his country, and ended up spending three years or two and a half years in the safest place in the world. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah, actually yeah, yeah. fighting 
Um, so I knew I wanted to write about that aspect of it. The Canada stuff ended up not being right. in the book. Yeah. It, it was in an early draft that ended up being like a ridiculous number of words long okay. and didn't really hold together as a novel. So in the back of my head, there's still a, there's a sequel to, to First Time Solo in the back of my head. Um, and yeah, after finishing Dog Mountain, I, th- I felt I felt ready right. to tackle, because it's, it's a big story, yeah, it's a sure. big, emotionally quite a, a difficult story. And when I was 18, I wasn't ready to write it, yeah. but by the time I was what, 30, 31, I felt ready to tackle it. It so is, an, it's an emotional book, what gives the emotional heft, I think, is it's quite light-hearted to begin with, or at least quite mm. humorous to begin with. There is, as I say, this camaraderie, the kind of uh, uh, young guns meeting each other and uh, enjoying their music and you know, chasing women and all that. And then, so when it comes in, when the real tragedies start to come in, and they do uh, quite regularly as the book uh, unfolds, it really kind of stops you short. Oh, this wasn't the book I was reading about, you know, six chapters ago. Was that a deliberate thing? It was, yeah, it was very deliberate. But for a lot of war novels, and war, war films, war, war dramas, yeah. forget that these were real people. Yeah, absolutely. That these were 18, 19 year old men and women yeah. who could die any day. Yeah. And so they did what 18, 19 year olds have done for centuries and they have fun. They yeah. go out drinking, they try and have sex with each other, they, yeah. they play music and, and hang out and get into fights and argue with each other. And I really wanted to focus on that side of things this not people fighting in, in um, Dunkirk or, um, or across North Africa or anything like that although that's all was obviously happening yeah. at the same time but the people who they're doing their training they're not ready to fight yet. Yeah. They're, they're too young but because they're training you can't train 24 hours a day yeah. and Jack the main character is he grows up on a farm in Aberdeenshire and suddenly he's let loose in London yeah. with money in his pocket yeah. and, a, and a pilot's uniform which all the girls love yeah. and you know what boy wouldn't go mad <laughs> <laughs> well exactly I wouldn't ask which bits I want to buy a graphic on right now <laughs> um, so the character, I mean, I think the central character of Jack, basically based on your grandfather and a little bit of yourself thrown um, in. Not, right? No, not even... By the time I got around to writing it, it was sort of 12, 13 years after the initial idea. So any connection with my grandfather by that point had, had gone. Yeah, right, okay. Um, my grandfather contributed hugely in terms of research, right. in terms of details. And Jack's, the training follows my grandfather's training yeah Yeah. so I went through you know my granddad very kindly gave me his uh, logbook to look through so like literally what he did every day how many left turns and how many right turns in the the training plane that kind of thing so I could go through it and make sure it was all all correct but Jack himself and any character in the story really bear very little connection Okay. Um, he, he wasn't even a farmer. He grew up in Peterhead. He was the right. son of a chemist. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, um, they do share a love of jazz. Is that something that you're willing to admit on? I, am, I honestly don't know what my <laughs> grandfather's taste in music are. Um, I know my grandmother loved going to dances and, and things mm-hmm. like that. So, and it was, you know, it was the popular music at the time. So, so that was why, basically, yeah, they're. they're music interests surrounded that music because it was yeah. the hip new it was the hip I mean I, I love jazz as well yeah. myself and I made Jack a trumpet player because I'd love to have learned yeah, the trumpet yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah I wanted it one of ants I mean it's got quite you're talking about war films and it's got quite a cinematic feel I felt when I was reading it you know you could see these, these guys you know out having fights and all that stuff and then you know playing a bit of jazz in a club yeah <laughs> So, and I mean, in some ways, when I was putting it together, nobody's ever said this in a review, but I would call it, I, it's not a war novel, it's yeah. almost a campus novel ah, in my head. That it's about yeah. all these young boys going away. Uh-huh. If it was 50, 60 years later, they'd be going away to university, not going away to war. They all go, they meet people from all different backgrounds. And, you know, certainly when I was at university, half the people there started bands in the first couple yeah, of weeks. Yeah, so. that's very and true. It was, you know, it was indie bands when I was at, at uni, but back then it would have been, it would have been jazz. So. The, the idea, I think, that the kind of part of the worst part of war in general is waiting, and they're yeah. waiting to 
you know, be set free and it reminded me a bit of Catch-22 in that way where, you know, they're kind of thinking about we're finished now and then they get told that they have to fly more flights yeah. and all that and the kind of madness that, yeah. that surrounded that. Two, two more weeks, three more weeks, four yeah, more weeks. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So then why the jump from that book to um, Selma Hill? Selma Hill was, this is going to sound strange and a publisher probably wouldn't like me saying it, Selma Hill was never supposed to be a book right? when I originally conceived it. I'd had, the first time solo was a difficult book to write, I, okay. I threw two full drafts, about more than 200,000 words in the bin, and the, the version that was eventually published was the third version written from scratch. So by the time I did that, and then went through the editing process, yep. I was just burnt out right. from it. But because the editing took so long, I had all this kind of creativity yeah. building up. That sure. I, I don't. I, when I'm working on a novel, I don't work on anything else. Uh-huh. I don't do short stories or anything while I'm doing that. I can only concentrate on the book. So as soon as I finished it, there was like this explosion of short stories yeah, and poems yeah, 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 yeah. and everything. And I'd had two things I'd wanted to write about um, for a very long time. One was there's a there's a statue, an icon in the National Museum of Scotland called the Balhulish figure, right. which is a wonderful, wonderful, creepy piece. It's an old pagan idol that was pulled out of a, a peat bog in Aberdeenshire. And I, it, every time I go back to Edinburgh, I go to the museum and I go and see it, and it scares the crap out of me. Right. It's something really, it's like a big black wooden figure with um, like gold brass or this is ringing a bell which museum is the National Museum in Edinburgh it's it's downstairs in the religious bit I think it was Andy Goldsworthy did a wood lattice thing behind it so it's really well presented and um, it always sparked some kind of weird like genetic memory or cultural memory inside me and I always wanted to write about it it kind of grabbed me but I tried a few things and I couldn't really get anything to work but I wrote a wee Twitter short story, one of these 140 yeah, character sure. things, yeah, yeah. for the museum ran a, a competition, write about something in the in the museum in 140 characters and you know, no prize or anything as far as I remember. So I wrote that, didn't win, it wasn't a very good story. But one of the guys called Jeff Sanders, I think his name is, that's really going to embarrassing if I've got that wrong. Um, <laughs> read the story he's an archaeologist right. at the museum he read the story and sent me a PDF of the original find okay. report and it was found by a Church of Scotland minister right. in Aberdeenshire and that sparked yeah. ooh there's something there's going here. something there that's, that's interesting at the same time I was reading because I'd been working on this, this serious book I started reading a lot of fun things yeah and a lot of um, a lot of Stevenson and a lot of Alexandre Dumas, right? Yeah, like the Three Musketeers yeah, series. I'd, I'd never like read like the full yeah. all the way to the end, and I hadn't read, I hadn't read Katrina, right? Stevenson, yeah, and I hadn't read the Master of Ballantry, yeah. So I was reading all of those at the same time and caught up in this sort of like adventure, short chapters, yeah. fast-paced cliffhangers, and I was like, right, I want to write that kind of story as a as a writer's holiday Virginia Woolf spoke about writer's holidays which yeah. wrote Orlando it was like this series book's done I want to write something fun yeah, and mad yeah, yeah. and enjoyable nuts, yeah. and that's what started Selma Hill I started writing about the the idol being found and unleashing witch, accusations of witchcraft and yeah. spirits and things like that and the first draft was that it was fun and adventurous and, and it kind of got all that creativity that burst of creativity out while I was thinking about what my second book was supposed to be. Okay. What serious yeah, literary yeah, yeah. topic I was going to tackle next. And um, a bit I, of swashbuckling, I'm going to. Yeah. yeah. And I showed it to, I've got a, a, a kind of reading, editing relationship with um, Simon Sylvester. Yes. Who's, who wrote The Visitors. Yeah. Very, very good book. So he and I have been friends for a long time and we show each other all our works. So I showed him the early version of Selma Hill and he said, this is great turn it into a proper book take out the stupid things take out the bad jokes and the puns and stuff that I put in when I'm not being edited and turn it into a proper book take it seriously so I did I rewrote it added kind of the entire section from when um, the character Henry Trent comes in added all of that 
showed it to showed it to my agent and showed it to to Freight and they said yeah book number two fantastic great <laughs> so sort of um, lucky lucky accident in some ways um, is it a world that you think you might return to did you know there are successful television shows these days which sound very similar <laughs> to that <laughs> um, yeah there's I've got an idea for a, a novel involving that character Henry Trent so a, a prequel in the, in the same universe but not connected to the, the story and not witchcraft kind of stories okay. just that sort of era um, I like I like science I like writing about scientists and in that book Trent is sort of an amateur gentleman scientist um, so I'd like to return and write about that yeah. at some point um, yeah you see you like science and, and uh, Cass, Cassie Cassie Carrie is a bulk Volcanologist. What's oh, your volcanologist? That sounds like yeah, a Star Trek. Yes, <laughs> but that's um, how you spell it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, as a science, is that one of, the, the, one of your real kind of passions? In that, it way? it was when I was younger, and I sort of had this is not a bad experience at school. Science at school didn't quite capture me the way yeah. um, literature did. Um, yeah. But I almost went to university to study. Um, biomedical sciences or genetics right. okay and literally about two weeks before term started I phoned them up and said I want to change to English and philosophy and they thought I was taking the piss they thought it was a crank call yeah but um, best decision I ever made um, but I've always had like an amateur enjoyable interest in, in science but I sort of forgot about it all um, until I read so I, I spoke about reading Andrew O'Hagan's book yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. the other book that, that sort of helped spark this book is Pippa Goldsmith's The Falling Star yes, yeah. which is about um, an astronomer and I read that and it brought back to me something that, that I'd thought previously and sort of forgotten about and dismissed that it's bizarre how few literary novels are written about science and scientists yeah we're, we're brilliant at writing about writers and musicians and yeah. painters and actors and directors and not so good about writing about or not, not so good we just don't write about scientists um, which I'm pleased there's so many more now doing now um, Pippa's doing it there's she edited it, an anthology and there's all these great yeah. writers um, writing about science and scientists and it kind of just excited me I was like I, I want to do that I want to I want to get involved. I want to, you know, I love science. I love geology. I've always yeah. been fascinated. When I was a kid, um, for family holidays, we would go up into the Highlands right. every summer and go walking around the Cairngorms and Sky and those those kind of places. So it always just been like a, an amateur passion, which I know nothing about yeah. in terms of what kind of rock that is and how it was made. But I, was, I just thought, I want to write. I want my character to be a scientist. I want to. So you're yeah. glad you chose literature and philosophy? Yeah, in retrospect. Yeah, I tell yeah. people I'm glad I chose that. They don't believe me when I tell them. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it was the best thing ever did. Yeah, I still love it, but if I'd spent four years in a lab, yeah. I, I think I'd have cracked off. So. Easier to get funded, but that's a different easier, story. Easier to get funded, a lot less easy to do your homework in bed. That's true, <laughs> that's very true. I hunks of rock into the room on you. Um, well, you spoke a lot about Andrew Hagen there and Pippa Goldschmidt. What are other influences or other writers at the moment that you, you admire particularly? <coughs> at the moment, um, at the moment there's so many. The yeah. last two or three years, particularly in Scotland, have been wonderful. Yeah, for new writers, for debut writers and for writers really hitting their stride. Um, you know, think about people that have come out in the last year, Kirsten Innes and yep. Simon Sylvester and Jane Alexander, Maggie Ritchie, Margaret Montgomery, um, writers like um, Andrew Raymond Drennan, yep. The Limits of the World, this is his fourth book I think, third book, fourth uh, book? That was his third book. Third book, yeah. and it's, but it's, just, it's such a phenomenally good book. Yeah. Um, there's just been so much in the last few years and there's there's more coming, Helen Sedgwick's yeah, novels coming really out in a few months, yeah. me too, um, and I do some reading and some editing for, for my publisher Freight, so some of the stuff I've read that's coming down the pipeline is just fantastic as well, so yeah, it's kind of, 
it's interesting, I think, because there's maybe less, maybe there's not less pieces to get published, but there's certainly, it's more difficult, I think, to perhaps get onto a large publisher. Yeah. But there are now all these fantastic small publishers that seem to be really championing, not even local authors, just authors that they really have a great relationship with. I think it's, in some ways, I think it's an unintended but pleasant um, consequence of the lack of money in publishing. <laughs> I think you're right. Because you're right. the small publishers, like um, Freight and Cargo and Saraband and yeah. those kind of publishers, I would imagine, I don't know, I've never, I haven't seen any of their books, but I would imagine, their financial books, yeah. but I would imagine they couldn't afford to pay Arvin Welsh's yeah. advance or um, Ali Smith's advance. Yeah. So they all go with Faber or, or whoever. But the big publishers won't take the risks yeah. on people like me, people yeah. like Kirsten Ennis, people like Jane Alexander. So it's sort of split yeah. the industry in a way that the, the smaller publishers are focusing much more on the newer writers and while the, the mainstream publishers are publishing the, the bigger writers. Yeah, yeah. Um, although saying that, Freight got... Janice Gallery's most recent. Well, again, that maybe tells its own story. Yeah. I mean, you obviously have collections of short stories, I think, or something else, yeah. which have actually prospered through smaller publishers um, publishing them, yeah. whereas bigger publishers might go short stories, not the read short stories. Exactly. Yeah, it's a shame. Um, so, what is next for you? After uh, this bit, or is it too early to? Um, too early to see. I'm not sure. I've got in, I think November, I've got a small poetry collection coming out, a collection of haiku, haiku-ish poems. Um, there's a, a small poetry press in Aberdeenshire called Tap Saltiri. Yeah. And um, that's done people like Callum Roger and, and uh, there's one coming out of Kate too. So they're doing that, and it's called Fractures. So that's the next thing. Um, in terms of novels, I've got a couple of ideas. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure which is which is quite grabbed me yet, which one I'm going to pursue. Um, it'll be something new, probably something set in Japan. Yeah. Um, I really want to... I want to use my knowledge and my experience, but also it's so much easier to do research if you're already living there. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, setting a book in Hawaii, New Zealand, and Scotland, and England, Japan, and Korea is not a great idea in terms of research. And, and not unless you should have a huge advance on you. That would be nice, but, <laughs> but no, um, it was mostly uh, Google Maps and <laughs> Google Street View for a lot of that. I mean, you mentioned Andrew Raymond Brennan's book. I think what's incredible about that. Is that you really get a sense of place of Korea? I know. You know? Well, we know he's not here. It's a really amazing book. And, yeah. Um, there's been a few books recently, actually. I'm thinking of David Simon's book. Yeah. Uh, oh, Eternal Sense of What Is Beautiful. I think that's oh, what it's an called. Ex- an Exquisite Sense. Yeah. Exquisite Sense. Yeah. That's a that's a really good book about Japan. Ah, yeah, um, absolutely fabulous, isn't it? Great. And um, Nicholas Hogg's Tokyo, of course, was fantastic. It's a, a lot of books about Japan are. Are very very good and very very well written, but they tend to go one of two ways. They yeah. go the aesthetic, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it the cherry blossoms and, and that yeah. kind of thing? The poetry and the, the art and beauty of the country, or they go, isn't it weird being a foreigner in a country yeah. like Japan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what is brilliant about Nicholas Hogg's book is that it's the first time I've read a novel that shows Japan as I experience it as I live there. Right. That it's just a normal Japan with none of the romanticism and none of the stereotypes. It's just a straight, this is actually what living in Japan for a foreigner is yeah. like. And what Japan is like, certainly after the, the tsunami and the earthquake sure. and the, the meltdown. It's it's a very good book. They, um, but there is obviously a kind of eternal attraction, not just for Scots, but for, for that part of the world, yeah. uh, and to, to kind of uh, to write about it. So I take it it's still different enough that it, it, it kind of retains its interest kind of on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm basically settled there now. Yeah. It's it's more not more my home, not emotionally, but physically, it's, you know, it's, it's where I live, it's where my wife is, it's, uh, we've just bought a house, yeah. so it's, 
yeah, it's very much embedded in my psyche now, so I think it'd be very difficult not to write about it. Yeah, sure. Um, and you're going to, once you've finished up in Glasgow, you are going to be going up to Aberdeen. Yeah. Has it been a while since you've been there? Um, for any length of time, I was, I was, I flew into Aberdeen, I was flying oh, right, to Aberdeen okay. when I come back, because, um, yeah, I think my mum would be a bit disappointed <laughs> if I just said, I'm going to Glasgow to yeah, see my sure, friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it was nice to spend the weekend there. Because I always think, um, well, I've not been to Aberdeen for a while, you go back and you think, this is not like any other city in yeah. the UK. It's you know, there are bits of Glasgow that are a little bit like Dundee, and there are bits of, you know, uh, or Paisley, or Liverpool, or something, but Aberdeen seems to be... Yeah. You know, I don't know whether it's the stone... It's a big part of it. It's the it's just, pavements. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the coldest I ever was was uh, at Pataudry when I was young. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, there's something about it that kind of seems to be... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, things like the stone, the granite does does give a, a visual difference. It does look very different from most places. I think, I mean, I don't know what Aberdeen was like from my own experience before the oil. Sure. Um, so that obviously had had to have had a huge impact and yeah. a huge influx of people not from Aberdeen, people from America, people from England, people from all over the world yeah. working in the oil industry, all come to Aberdeen. And that changed, I mean, Aberdeen's got, for a city that size, there's an amazing array of restaurants, yeah. different yeah. kinds of food, that kind of thing. It's, and even in the last, even in the last 10 years since I, I first left, um, it's become so much more multicultural yeah. than it ever was. Um, I was walking down Union Street yesterday and the, the number of different languages you hear as you're walking down, it's just wonderful. It's, it's so nice to see because obviously Aberdeen's so far north and so damn cold yeah. that um, if I was coming from Europe or Africa or Asia to come and live in Britain, I maybe wouldn't go that far up the coast before settling. There's, so. a, there's got to be a reason uh, yeah. that you want to get there. But of course, you get some of those beautiful countryside around there as well. Um, well, I think that's the perfect place to leave it, Ian. Thanks. I'm so pleased to meet you. I'm yeah, always you too. Thank you very much for, for having me on. And uh, I have to say, the book is tremendous. I've read it and absolutely so loved it. I think um, it's a real a real coming of age as a writer I have to say I, oh, think thank you. I look forward to whatever you do doing it Great. thank you <laughs> and uh, we'll be back next time with uh, someone completely different cheers mm.